I got into politics because my grandma, when she passed, the last thing she said was, you got to take care of the farm. And that moved me in a way that I never thought. And that led me eventually down the road to running for office. And that still drives me. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is J.D. Scholten, the executive director of RuralVote.org, a super PAC with the mission to improve the democratic brand in rural communities. I really enjoyed getting to know J.D., who made two great runs for Congress in a tough district for Democrats in rural Iowa, nearly knocking off Congressman Steve King in 2018. Democrats have simply not been competing well for the rural vote, and we need to turn this around. I've been interviewing a number of key people who are working on that problem and plan to mix them into my upcoming episodes for a while. J.D. is a compelling person with whom to start that off. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with J.D. Scholten of RuralVote.org. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. J.D., would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. Uh, my name is J.D. Scholten. I am a f- two-time former congressional candidate uh, here from Western Iowa, raised here in, in Sioux City, Iowa, played minor league baseball for a while and ended up working as a paralegal. And in 2016, uh, I was living in Seattle, actually, when uh, the election happened. And my biggest inspiration is my grandma. and the last thing she said to me before she passed at that Thanksgiving was, you got to take care of the farm. And I moved back to Iowa and I, I live in my parents' house and we have a family friend taking care of the, the farm. But uh, at the end of the day, running for office was, was taking care of the farm. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. That connection to sports uh, and politics, it comes up from time to time. And with people who have backgrounds like you do, it comes up in the metaphors and the kind of competitiveness and the way people keep score in both areas. Tell me a little bit about that baseball background first. Dad was a coach, was that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So when I was born, my dad was uh, a head baseball and basketball uh, coach at a high school, and he was an assistant coach at Iowa State for baseball. Uh, he got the head baseball job at Morningside College, which is in Sioux City, Iowa, and that's how my family moved. Ultimately, I, I grew up playing baseball and basketball. The nice thing about Iowa and the weather is that uh, it, it allows six months, six months. And so uh, really split the time. And then uh, had a chance to do either or 
in college and, and I decided uh, the baseball route and I played for my father. I had a chance to get drafted, turned it down and went to the University of Nebraska, got to play in the College World Series my senior year and then played professional baseball after that. Ultimately, I played in seven different countries and uh, this past summer, I hadn't played in seven years and I, I got to play town team baseball again after a long time and and actually pitch one of the, the best I've ever had in my life. And uh, not quite the velocity I used to have, but uh, uh, smarter and better location. Yeah. I remember, you know, in third grade, uh, I wanted to be a shortstop and I never went down the road that you did, but uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of the dream of a lot of kids. Yeah. I always wanted to be, and this is where I think I really don't judge a book by its cover and, and hate labels, uh, because I grew up playing shortstop and being a point guard, and then I grew to be six six, and so they kind of moved me in both scenarios. I talked about that a lot on the campaign trail, where like I don't like pigeonholing myself in, in any type of label, and, and I just I am who I am. Well, nowadays, a professional point guard 6'6 six, six isn't even all that big. <laughs> <laughs> True. I was born in the wrong era. <laughs> was it the Trump election that really uh, pulled you back to Iowa in, and into politics as well? There was a lot to it. I mean, growing up here, we have the caucuses. And so we are disproportionately around politics, I think, than a lot of other people. And so uh, I just remember all the presidential candidates coming through that kind of made you or made me a little bit more political. But then I've always been active when I was at Nebraska, my, when I was uh, finishing up school and done with my eligibility, I ended up going on a over 20 hour, I think it's like 22 hour bus ride from Lincoln to DC to protest the potential war in Iraq, things like that. When I worked as a paralegal, I worked at law firms that were pretty political in the sense that uh, they would bring candidates in and, and have fundraisers. And and I was a paralegal, and so I didn't really give the money, but I would go to the events and ask questions. But when I moved out to Seattle, I wasn't active. I, I, I mean, I voted in every election. I just, I didn't have, I think I felt a little out of place being a Midwesterner out there. And, and part of it was, yeah, I don't want to get super involved and, and push my issues on folks. I would rather talk about them because I, I know the politics around here, uh, not so much out there. And so, um, but then, yeah, when, when Trump got elected, I saw what happened in the nation and I saw specifically what happened here in Iowa where we went Obama, Obama, and then Trump, now Trump, Trump. And so I just saw all that and I was like, that's not us. That's not the Iowa I grew up in and I want to go back and make a difference. Um, that didn't necessarily mean running for office, but then uh, a lot of things fell in place and ended up uh, giving it a chance. And you had a rather notorious Republican from the district you ran in, right? Tell me about yeah. him. Yeah. So, so Steve King uh, was an uh, 18-year incumbent, pretty notorious for very controversial views and tweets and all that. Love to talk about Western civilization and the big replacement theory and 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 things like that. A couple of his more famous tweets is we can't restore our civilization with other people's babies. He is just as conservative and and out there as you can find. And uh, part of my decision on on all this was I, I was like I looked at what the Democrat did 
before I ended up running in 2016. And this is an area where, where there's not a lot of Democrat establishment and you have to hustle and grind and everything. And it's very difficult to run a a legitimate race. It's 39 counties. It's half rural. uh, It's the most rural district in Iowa. And it's just, it's, it's very difficult to campaign in. And the previous person raised $200,000. And and in my mind, I've never ran for anything. I didn't know anything about like running, but I knew if I could get out there and talk to people, I feel like I could, I could make some sort of a difference. And so my one goal in all of this, when I first started was raise enough money to get a Winnebago RV because uh, they're made in the district. And uh, we bought one through the logo on the side and really just went nonstop. And I, I held town halls in all counties. I, I just went out there and, and really we personified what a grassroots campaign is all about. And it was great because we went to all 39 counties at least three times, some of them dozens of times, others uh, just the three. The first time I remember going to all of them, uh, it was more of a God bless you, somebody should run against King. <laughs> the second time it was, oh, you're just not anti Steve King, you're actually for something. And then the third time, it was, oh, we have a chance. And there was that hope and that excitement. And a lot of these areas where, uh, even where I live, my state rep, my state senator, my uh, governor, my member of Congress, and both senators, all Republicans. And so a lot of the, the Democrats or people who would lean Democrat are, are quiet, and it's an uphill fight. And so to get the same Democrats who... Uh, I wouldn't say that like they were quiet or anything like that. I would say more that like they they were untapped because they hadn't been engaged in a while. I mean, these folks were putting yard signs in and like, it was just so special to drive into a town I hadn't been in and see our yard sign before I even got there while driving the RV and getting all the thumbs up. And we ended up uh, in 2018 moving the needle. Uh, Trump won the district 27 points and we ended up losing by three just 10,000 votes. And I mean, this was literally starting from scratch. I've never ran before. I had no idea how to call anyone to ask for money. I don't come from money. <laughs> it was something pretty darn special. And and then the last about 10 days was just unbelievable because there's a series of events. Our campaign was in every uh, publication and just it, it, it really... Uh, blew up the race, and and then there was a poll that showed we were within one, and and that just all hell broke loose. We ended up raising in the last week, in in two two days we raised over six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we and in the last week we raised over a million dollars, and and we only raised three point two for the entire cycle, so a third of our money came at the very end. It was bizarre and and uh, exciting, but like politics is very like. You either win or you lose. I assumed I was just going to run. If I lost, I was done. If I won, great. But uh, here we were. Uh, we lost, but we gained all this momentum. We had the caucuses and everything. I ended up running again, but uh, 2020 was a different beast. Uh, King lost his primary. And what I thought in the general is we just got drowned out. COVID didn't help, but we had a Senate campaign that was. I don't know how much, like $200 million was spent in, in Iowa, I think, combined from both sides. And just our message was drowned out. You had a presidential race. 
I literally drove the RV to all 374 towns in the summer of 2020 uh, to fall. Uh, but and we tried to make as big a noise as we could, but the the political waves just were not there, and 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 uh, we ended up losing. Yeah, how much do you think was the difference in opponents? You had such a controversial first opponent; he probably made himself fairly vulnerable by all of these out there comments versus somebody fresh. And how much do you think it was like that visibility and getting drowned out? It, it's hard to say because we had people run against him before and he said controversial things before, but nobody was able to tap into something like we were able to. Um, he, he's won by 20 every single time other than one time uh, he won by, I believe it was nine. There was something that we we connected with folks uh, on this, and we had a very special campaign in 2018. Both of them were special. It just it's unfortunate. I wouldn't have changed anything of what we did, did in 2020 um, uh, because we did everything the best we could. And sometimes, especially from coming from sports, you know, you prepared everything right, you did everything right, and sometimes the ball doesn't fall your way, and some sometimes things are just out of your hands, and so especially when you can't control the makeup of the district. Right? Right. I mean, like there might just be a district that leans pretty hard Republican. Right. I mean, there's 70,000 more registered Republicans and Democrats in this district. And, and that's the bottom line. The thing that really fascinates me is that King lost his primary in the age of Trumpism and, and right in the heart of Trumpism. And so where do you draw the line when you're a Republican between, oh, what Steve King says is wrong and, and went too far and where Trump is okay? And, and like to me, that that just it, it's fascinating. And to be honest, I don't know what, what where that line is. Did Trump endorse him? Uh no. Uh he stayed out of it, I believe. It, yeah, he did until he ended up endorsing Feenstra in, in the long run, but that, whatever. Um, but the, the thing I, I think that doesn't get talked about enough is King, he was lazy, you know, he, he, he didn't fundraise. Um, he, he ran a horrible, uh, 2018 campaign cause he, he never had to run a campaign. And then he, his primary, he didn't even go on television and then he lost his, his primary. I mean, if he raised enough money, go on television for a week saying, hey, I'm still the same old Steve King that you voted for for the last nine terms or whatever it was, I'm sure he would have won. But uh, he didn't. And that's his own hubris. And and uh, he's no longer our member of Congress. Sometimes when you talk to first-time congressional candidates, you'll hear a story like the DCCC kind of told me what to do. They told me to stay on the phones and fundraise the whole time. They did not tell me to go around on a Winnebago to every county. They told me to make these ads and, you know, play them over and over. And I, as a candidate, felt incredibly hamstrung by the situation and I lost or I won. You seem to have run such a different campaign. It's perhaps you had that freedom because it wasn't considered a, winnable district at the beginning. Right. Oh, absolutely. And perhaps because you're, you had a strong view about how to do it. Tell me about that, how it worked out. I think you're exactly right. Like I wasn't recruited to run. This district was nowhere on the map when it comes to the D trip. 
I talked to somebody when we launched just to say, hey, I'm running. Um, I reached out to them uh, a couple times. They didn't respond. I reached out when we first outraised King two to one in Q4 of 2017. I was like, hey, um, we're putting together something special here. You should pay attention. And just no response. When I won the primary, I ended up having a primary when we won it. I reached out again, and the person who was in charge of our area uh, passed us to somebody else because I think they sh- they switched jobs or something. Then my manager ended up talking to them maybe a couple times, but but that's about it. And that was 2018. I will say I was very naive in a lot, a lot of things. For the primary, we ended up having a nine-person staff uh, on election night, uh, and I was the campaign manager and candidate, and I don't advise that to anybody. It was exhausting. We were kind of the bad news bears. It, there was a lot of passion. And, and you know, when you have somebody like King, you can get people uh, on a campaign feeling pretty unified and, and giving you the benefit of the doubt. Um, you have a really good foil there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um and then when, when it came to 2020, uh, you know, I was getting a lot of folks, we had a Senate race and I was getting a lot of folks who, pretty substantial folks who wanted me to run for Senate. I mean, I, I went through the whole thing of talking with Schumer's folks and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, I felt I couldn't run for Senate and just watch Steve King get reelected. And so I decided to run the race again. And the D trip said they'd be all in and all that stuff. And one of my agreements or or just, I mean, it was not written down or anything like that. It was just, I was like, you know, you guys can come help, but like, I know how to run this race. I know these people. I I know what works. I go, if you're willing to, to let us lead on this, I'd be happy to have your support. And we battled them uh, most of the way. And then at, at a certain point, and the other part of it too is I have so many volunteers, so many Democratic Party chairs who work their tails off for me, and they kept on asking, "Are you getting D trip support? Are you are you getting help from the national folks?" And we were honest, and we're like, "No, no." And it it just upset them more, and and here all these people are working their tails off, and and that to me was the part that I finally said, "You know what? Enough's enough." Um, I'm just going to say that I'm not taking their support. We came out with a statement saying we're not going to accept the support of the D trip. And we ended up probably raising more money than the D trip would ever spend in this district based off of that, just because there's that sentiment. I, I think the way that they are set up, they're not set up for a district like this, like they're, they're campaign in a box. Um, I'm very much opposed to it's a system where it's meant to, I think win by 51% no matter where you're at. I think it goes beyond just the D-trip. And I'm not here to be anti-establishment. I'm not here to be anything other than I want to win some damn races so we can pass universal health care and we can pass things that will actually influence people's lives. I was blessed to play baseball all over the world and and like seeing what other healthcare systems are compared to what we have to deal with here. And that's what really gets me going. And to me, at the end of the day, that's why I'm very vocal about the Democratic Party in not allowing us to have the success. And that comes a lot from the strategy for me playing in sports. That comes from the competitiveness. It's 
yeah, if we're, <laughs> we need to have a better system in place because right now we have huge gaps, specifically in the rural areas, and we're just allowing the other side to have it. And when you have the rural skew of the Senate, we have the rural skew of the Electoral College and, and of the Supreme Court, it, it, it's, it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. I, I mean, I understand the DTRIP's perspective. They have to target their money. They're going to look kind of formulaically at 435 different districts, and some of them are going to look impossible to them, and they're going to disregard them in favor of the ones that uh, they think they have a chance. It kind of reminds me of in baseball, that idea of money ball, looking at players based on you know, their looks and whether they had five tools and, and not really delving into the stats and whether some gangly guy out of Iowa could throw it 98 miles an hour. And even though he looked funny, <laughs> I agree. I think there's two things. I think that when you have the DCCC and you have the DSCC and you have the DNCC slash state parties, they all have kind of their own interests and we need to find a system for them to work a little bit better. If you go to only where the Democratic voters are or the strong base, you see that in the caucus. When Democrats from out of state and their campaigns come in, they go to where they can win the caucus, and that's not in Western Iowa. And so then that gets in the mindset of folks saying, oh, all these Democrats, they're not for me. They're for Des Moines. They're for Cedar Rapids. They're for Iowa City. And, and I think that is part of things. Then. I think the other side of this that doesn't get talked about en enough is when you apply for endorsements and things like that, one of the first questions on a lot of questionnaires are, who are your consultants? And I didn't understand what that meant initially, but it, it ended up, I realized that who you hire as your consultants for your digital, your television, all that stuff, like that signals to other folks, oh, he's he's this or that or or she is this or that and all this stuff and it, do you have a name brand consultant yeah right and and so um and what really bugged me is in 2020 i trust my campaign manager to find a pollster to do all this stuff in 2018 we had one of the most beautiful digital ads you'll ever see it was field of dreams themed it was just gorgeous. I believe it ended up winning awards. And, and everyone in Iowa who saw it, who, who commented to me, I, I didn't have any pushback on it. And everyone thought it was great. When I launched it again, like they were, I was getting pushed uh, to use different people. And I was like, no, they, they have my voice. And they, they understand who I am and what I'm trying to do here. And, and that, that part of me just, just rubbed me the wrong way. And then you look at races like Virginia or New Jersey, like when we underperform at the end of the day, or when we lose a race at the end of the day, consultants are going to get paid. What are we doing to hold the strategists and, and consultants uh, accountable? And, and that's what we see in this rural space. We see a lot of folks who they might've been born in, in Iowa or, or somewhere in the Midwest. And for the last 20, 30 years, they've been a consultant to the who's who of the party saying this is what we need to do here well a lot of it's changed i think there's this perception that rural the, when i talk about rural especially rural iowa people think about a white farmer 
in in farmers, I'm in the second most agriculture producing district in America. And there are more people who work at Walmart and Dollar General than our farmers. And so why aren't we focused on them? Um, you think about who's going to be the next in Iowa, the next rural Democrat in the state legislation. It's going to be a Latino or Latina, most likely. And it may not be for six, eight, maybe 12 years, but it's going to happen. And and why aren't we investing in that now? And, and so... Uh, that's been my big push is things have changed dramatically. Local papers have changed dramatically. More rural folks are on Facebook and get their news from Facebook than anywhere else. And why aren't we there as a party? And we're just getting absolutely crushed. You look at the top 10 things on Facebook every day. There's a Twitter account that posts that almost every day. It's seven out of 10, but often it's 10 out of 10 right wing propaganda. It's the Ben Shapiro's, the Bangino's, the the Fox This, OAN, Breitbart, all this stuff. They're the top stuff that's being posted and shared. You know, where are we as a party? Why aren't we there? That's a huge frustration, um, very frustrating part of, of what uh, I'm dealing with and why I'm still active even after losing twice. In the fall of 2016, I drove out into Western Maryland. I, I'm located in D.C. And... You know, Maryland's a Democratic state, but in rural Maryland, it was Trump signs everywhere, you know, and I'm like, what is going on here? What are they seeing in this guy and why are there no Hillary signs? And just recently I was driving out into rural Virginia and all the signs were Youngkin, not McAuliffe. Why is a real estate developer from New York, why is a multi-hundred millionaire private equity guy doing well in struggling rural areas. It's kind of mind bending, actually. I mean, it, it is when you don't understand what's going on. And I'm not trying to be offensive or anything, but but it, it is when you're an outsider. But but when that's the only thing you're hearing, that's what you're going to like, like all the, the craziness that they think Democrats are. It's because they're being told this. And we're, we're not countering. I think what happened in 2016 and what happened in Virginia are so similar in that the Democrats lost an economic populist message in those races. And, and we lost it to a New York billionaire. We lost it to a, a CEO of a hedge fund or whatever Youngkin did. Like, like how, how do we not win that battle? You know, and if we don't, then who are we as Democrats? You know? That's where I get very frustrated. And you look at the success. You look at why Obama won Iowa twice. He had an economic populist message. You can say that he fell flat on some of the stuff when he was in office or not. I, I've, heard, I've heard the criticism. That's fine. But when he campaigned, it was an economic populist message, an inclusive economic populist message. And, and to me, that is something that we've lost uh, in the last few years. And, and it fed right into this beast. And it, it's not like Trump is anything special or, or Yunkin or anything like that. A Trump or a Yunkin or somebody was going to happen eventually where, the, where this beast was going to get fulfilled. And, and that's kind of uh, what I see. And, and there's no counter argument in a lot of these places. And, and that's the thing. So uh, right now I'm the executive director for ruralvote.org. And right before 
I joined, I ended up commissioning a poll with Matt Hildreth, who runs ruralorganizing.org. It was with YouGov. We wanted just generic testing. Like we, we thought of just generic things that like would be a good rural candidate. And um, then we put them up against somebody who's, who's not from there, who's from the coast, kind of a coastal elite, ends up um, a multimillionaire who wants to cut taxes on the wealthy. Well, this generic candidate wins by 35%. You put a D by that generic candidate and they lose by 1%. That's a 35, 36 point swing just because you have the Democratic brand by your name. That's how bad it is. And, and this poll was done in rural communities in eight battleground states. That's how bad it is. And what are we doing to counter that? And that's a huge part of why I decided to join ruralvote.org and, and what we're trying to accomplish. What was ruralvote.org before you joined it? So it started last cycle. So when I uh, ran, I had no affiliation with them because we were uh, walled off. And uh, basically, they got some money late in 2020. And uh, there's a lot of folks saying, hey, we need, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to improve in rural. And so um, Matt Hildreth from ruralorganizing.org founded this uh, last cycle. And they got 42,500 yard signs in three states in like six weeks. And I mean, it was just massive organizing 42,500 yard signs in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all in rural communities. They did this study in Kentucky that per 11 yard signs uh, in a precinct, you can get one extra vote. And so that was the mentality. I got to be clear, yard signs in actual people's yards, not billboards, not not in uh, commercial areas. It's people saying, this is who I'm for. They did that. And then after the election, I, I talked with Matt pretty consistently, almost every day, but but several times a week. And it, we got to a point where I was like, well, you know, I, I built this network from my two campaigns. He has his rural organizing network. You know, if we combine them, I wonder what we could do to help shape the party. And, and that's my big thing. I know we can talk crap about the party or, or, or there's a lot of people with frustrations for the party. At the end of the day, we are the party and we can decide this. And that's the thing that I push for most. And for me, I realize we're not focused on rural. So I am committed to making this more of a priority so we can have more than just 50 senators, <laughs> have more opportunities. I don't get bogged down in the moderate progressive or, or what side of of the party you're on at the end of the day for me it's we have to do better in rural and then let's have those debates the percentage of the country that is rural has diminished in a sort of linear way over time since the founding of the republic there's still a lot of people who live in rural areas a large number of people and in a lot of states they are kind of being ignored or just assumed out of the picture by democrats we're seeing is democratic percentages going down and down in those kind of rural counties to the degree that we can't even make up for them with votes in the cities it's causing real problems statewide it's happening quicker lately and it's not just confined to white people how big is your organization 
who else are your allies in this? What's the state of kind of rural organizing in the Democratic Party, in the progressive ecosystem? The first part is the reason why we're doing this is because uh, there's no one else doing it. And not to say that there's no one else doing it. There's no one else building this network. And so November 6th, uh, we had a four-hour, um, what we called a national rural strategy session. And we had over 200 people sign up. We had over 50 groups from 34 states. And it was great. We had 10 different presenters. We had a ton of more people wanting to present than, than we had space for. We had our pollster come on and, and talk about the poll that we did. And, and so, and in fact, Business Insider we released a memo to Business Insider and they wrote an exclusive about our memo based off of what we did on, at this strategy session. And pretty much everyone who was part of that all said the same thing. If, if the party was, was doing their job or, or doing what we want them to, we'd not be in this space. But the, the reality is we're not, that, we're not and we're getting crushed and it's getting worse. And if we're, we're going to win statewide, we have to do better. And, and to me, there's a couple things. One, there's a study that shows by 2050 that 15 states are, is going to have 70% of the population. And so you look at that, so that's 30 senators for those uh, states. The 70 senators are going to represent only 30% of the population. And that's not much of a democracy. But at the same time, those are the rules we're playing in right now. We might as well and <laughs> start investing because you better fight on that field or we're just going to lose. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, that's, that's kind of where we're at and a huge part of why we're doing what we're doing. What's the state of the organization? Like how many people is it? What, what kind of funding do you have? What type of organization is it? So we are a super PAC, Matt at ruralorganizing.org, which I have no affiliation with, uh, other than that he founded the, the super PAC that has been going much longer than we have. And so we're still just getting off the ground with this. We're donor funded. Uh, we're, we're different in the fact that we're a super PAC and it allows us to do a lot more than, um, than like a C3 or even a C4. And so we're allowed to be more political. And I think that's part of it is we have a lot of nonprofits in spaces. We don't have the political capacity in some of these spaces. And that's, that's, one area of what we're focused on doing. And, and whereas other super PACs are focused on raising money to uh, go up on television or radio ads and stuff to support candidates, we are more of a grassroots focused. Um, we want to be the high visibility in counties. And so like we had 39 counties in the fourth congressional district, we are focused on for the 2022 cycle uh, improving democratic performance in 39 counties across the nation, mostly in battleground states. And with that idea is we can win statewide uh, if we do this work and and have more senators or defend uh, some of the senators who are up in 2022. And then based off of what we're doing in 2022, and we're hoping to do some experimental stuff, then we'll have a much larger game plan for 2024 and overall, our goal is to create a network of rural, what we call brand ambassadors, who can really take the democratic message and Im implement it in their local communities. Do you find 
traditional Democratic donors receptive to this idea? It is extremely hard to get people interested in rural in, in the party, to be honest. Um, it's been a, very much a struggle. I think Virginia opened up a lot of eyes, and uh, that has been beneficial for us. We've gotten more press because of Virginia. I think the other thing, too, is when I talk to donors who aren't necessarily from rural communities saying, you know, what, what, what's important to you in the Democratic um, donor base right now, climate change is, is near the top. And so I tell them, like, if we don't improve in rural communities, like climate change is more impactful on rural communities, or you have more opportunities to impact uh, on climate change in rural communities than almost anywhere else. And uh, that's a huge part of what I've had a lot of success with. And I did that where those initially for the congressional campaign, but now with the super PAC, that's one area where we, we've gotten donors uh, backing. Plus, if you don't win some of these areas or do better in some of these areas, you can't have a pro-climate majorities. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You kind of talked about who people are listening to, the whole conservative propaganda machine of media that they have. Is there a Republican analog to rural vote that focuses on that? How do they organize in r the rural world? So there it's, there's not one thing they, what I call they, they have, um, they have infrastructure that bounces off of each other. On one side, you have chambers of commerce here in the Midwest farm bureau, uh, farm bureau, a, a lot of folks, uh, I don't think understand the severity of how polarizing and how partisan they are. They haven't endorsed a Democrat here in the state of Iowa in a federal race since, uh, I believe, 2008, so 13 years. And before then, there were, I don't know, probably four Republicans per every one Democrat. You also have the conservative radio. And what we're seeing is more and more politically active conservative churches. That all kind of feeds off of each other. And then when you have that infrastructure, it allows for messaging when you get a Fox News, OAN, Breitbart, when that message comes in to that ecosystem, it can bounce pretty quick and get around really quick. The other thing that we're seeing in Iowa, I mean, we definitely have it here in Sioux City, in Des Moines, the radio station that a lot of people grew up on, I would say they would talk about the news, but they weren't pushing certain news and, and the other, it was, I don't know, as a kid, I never noticed it, but now they're all right wing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a huge thing that we're seeing. What are your aspirations beyond like, take these 39 counties and move them to the left? Where do you want to take yourself through this process? Where do you want to take the party of the country? My personal things is making this so it's balanced so I can get the heck out of politics and I can just enjoy life. <laughs> um, you see behind well, you the curtain. You picked an awfully tough thing to, you could, you could be spending your life on this. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I got into politics because my grandma, when she passed, the last thing she said was, you got to take care of the farm. And that moved me in a way that I never thought. And that led me eventually down the road to running for office. And that still drives me. Our, our farms, like 
thousands of other farms. Uh, it's, it's not unique um, in any sense other than that every acre is unique. But uh, at the end of the day, it will probably be a lifetime of uh, fighting for stuff. I, I realize that, but I didn't get into politics to, I, I don't know. I, I'm not conventional in any means. There's a lot of people I know who run for office because they thought and ever since they were a kid that they were God's gift and they can do great things. And there's a lot of ego in all of this. I'm not that. I don't know what's next. I don't know if I'll ever run again. I'll be happy if I never run again. But will I stay active? Uh, probably because like I said, when you see behind the curtain and you see things that, that should be right, that's where I will compete and, and, and fight for. I mean, you said you, you know, were out of baseball for a while, but you went and played a game recently. <laughs> like it probably yeah. stays in your blood. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it does. And it's, it's weird because I'm pretty active on social media and I have a very bizarre cross section where I'm, I'm followed by a lot of athletes and a lot of sports journalists and, and different sports folks. I have this political side. There's a little bit of mixture, but it's different. And I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But uh, uh, I don't think I've ever fit very comfortably in categories in my entire life. And it's still true to this day. I, I like that in a person, actually. In, <laughs> in, in a weird twist of fate, the person I interviewed this morning was Irene Lynn. <laughs> who who I got by a totally different route as a guest than you. What was your experience with Irene? Irene is one of my favorite people in politics. And if the Democrats had a hundred people like her, I would not have to do anything like this. She is a unicorn. For folks who are listening, she was my 2018 campaign manager. She came on after we won the primary when I was the old manager and I handed her a pile of crap and she took that crap and made lemonade. And, you know, she is one of my favorite people. I, I still talk to her pretty regularly. There's very few people in politics that I trust and her opinion on things matter to me more than almost anybody else. And I, I think very highly of her. It was the first time I had talked to her, but I, I thought it was just so interesting to have this connection for me in the same day. And yeah, she, oh, she also great. had that interest in sort of a populist economic message and a knowledge about rural America and agriculture and things like that, that you don't see in a lot of campaign managers. Right. And it goes hand in hand. And she was the perfect campaign manager for me in 2018 in the sense that like I started talking about antitrust and, you know, no one from the DCCC would ever tell you to say this. Nobody, no pollster, no anybody would talk about this. And nobody was talking about it back in 2018. I think one of the biggest influence I, I feel that I've had on politics was in the caucus getting everybody to talk about this. We even made shirts that said America needs farmers, farmers need antitrust. Is that aimed at like the Monsantos of the world? What is that aimed at? So right now, the huge part of rural community is, I mean, it's agriculture based, but but even the non-agriculture, like these small towns are all, they were all originally like farm towns. And so right now, 
you have on the market side where the products go to, and you have the input sides of whether it's seed and feed or fertilizer, all that, just a handful of corporations control both sides. And so farmers are getting squeezed on both sides. But it's much bigger than that. We see it in tech right now. There was a jury that said that uh, Walgreens, CVS, and I think Walmart all had influence uh, in expanding the opioid uh, epidemic, and and they had to pay fines in this. So my other thing that I'm working on now, I'm a senior advisor at American Economics Liberties Project, which is an antitrust group, and I'm their rural advisor. To me, economic concentration is one of the biggest things that Democrats should be talking about right now. And to be honest, Biden was not that strong in the caucus on this, but I will defend what they're doing right now uh, because he's probably doing as much as almost every presidential candidate, maybe other than Warren and, and, and Bernie, on this. His executive order on economic concentration, I cannot tell you how important that is because it is the first time in my lifetime that a sitting president has acknowledged the importance of how economic concentration in our economy is hurtful. And that is just a massive, massive change from what we've seen. And so um, I think we are going to be seeing something in the next 10 to 15 years in this. I don't know how you can run for office when in a rural area and not talk about this uh, consistently. That That's my opinion. I, I'm trying to push more and more people to be talking about this because you look at that at our history. My, my political heroes, the Paul Wellstones, the Tom Harkins, uh, Berkeley Bedell was a, a member of Congress uh, from Northwest Iowa from the late 70s to late 80s. They're all cut from this prairie populist cloth. And we have lost that as a party. And that's one thing that I'm really trying to push uh, back on the party when it comes to messaging. We used to have progressive senators from North Dakota and Kansas and, and Nebraska and, you know, going back in the 20th century that were anti-concentration of wealth, that were economic populists, and they won on that. Well, and it, what's really interesting right now is if you look at the inverted way the Democrats have become where the rural folks are more moderate and the the, the city folks are, are more progressive, that used to be the reverse. I'm saying that's the reverse in the elected officials. Because when you t- actually talk to folks, I, I think it's much more uh, skewed. And, and that's where I feel as a message. I think there's plenty of opportunities to go to rural and go to urban and have that same message. And for me, that's that dollar general message. Like, it doesn't matter if you're, you're in, in, in rural Iowa or you're in Washington, D.C., People who live, uh, shop, and work and are around Dollar Generals, they have a lot of the same feelings and a lot of the same issues. And, and I, I, I feel that we as a party are not uh, doing a good job of connecting that. Agreed. Is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? I think we covered a lot. I always hate that question because I'll think of something when I'm falling asleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all good. It, it's it's fun to talk to you. I enjoyed it. I'm, I wish you a lot of luck with Rural Vote. I hope you make a difference out there. Appreciate talking to you. Anything else you want to say? 
No, just thank you for reaching out. And I, I really enjoyed this. And, and uh, I'm really glad you connected with Irene. <laughs> Her voice needs to be out there uh, a lot more than it is. That was J.D. Schulten. J.D. is at ruralvote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.